So, I was talking to uh, Pastor Matt Nix uh, this, this week, and we were talking about, uh, um, about the, the sermon series that, that we've done, and I was telling him how going through the book of Joshua, I was surprised how um, devotional it has been for me. I mean, how, how encouraging to me spiritually it has been, uh, the, the issues that are, it is a rich book. And, and uh, it, you will not get bored in the book of Joshua when you read it because, like I said before, it's filled with all kinds of amazing uh, exploits and adventure and battles, and, and uh, it can be exciting. But also, it, there are parts in it that, that are legitimately uh, disturbing. And so we have to wrestle with that, and, and I've been wrestling with that, and uh, God has been using that to shape me and mold me. And I, I want you to know Whenever I preach up here, whenever I have to uh, uh, preach a sermon, it is always my desire uh, that, that, you know, I'm not big old Pastor Matt preaching down to you lowly plebs, you know, parishioners, you know. And uh, I, I, I have to always be preaching to myself uh, as well. Uh, I do not. Pastors, no pastors have it all together. Pastors need the gospel just as much as anybody else does. And if I ever come across like I don't need the gospel and you all need to get your act together uh, because, and be like me, well, then you need to call me out on that because that is just dangerous and unhealthy. Um, so uh, as we go through Joshua, it's been especially um, formative uh, for me. And uh, this morning, our topic that, that we're addressing are our cravings. Our deep, powerful desires that can control us. Now, here's what I've learned over the years. Early on in ministry, I didn't see this as much, but as I got older and talked to more people, I have realized that every single one of us has some kind of addiction or another or more. That, that no, one, no one is free from addiction. Deep cravings, killer cravings. It just looks different from person to person. And those who don't think that they have, you know, any deep killer cravings or a, any type of addiction are in danger and, and are in deep denial. Some people have a physical addiction like substance abuse or pornography or gluttony. Some have an emotional addiction, which can manifest its, itself in, in all kinds of ways, including manipulation or guilt or gossip. So, so this is all of us here, all right? We all, deep down, are kind of like this guy, right? <laughs> At some point, there's some aspect of us that's like Gollum here, Right? And, 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 and what is it that he, what does he call what he's holding there? My precious, that's exactly right, my precious. We all have a my precious. In fact, some of us have multiple my preciouses. These cravings go deep, they are powerful, and they can destroy us and destroy others. So, my desire... Uh, for all of us, is to be real honest with ourselves. Uh, let's not be distracted by anything. Let's, let's focus. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to show us 
what is our precious? What is our deep craving, our killer craving that, that destroys us and the people around us? That, that, that strains relationships? That, that, that keeps you from loving people the way that, that, that they, they need to be loved? Ask God to show you that, and as, a, as the great physician will give you a diagnosis um, lovingly so that you can see it, recognize it, and do something about it. So would you do that? Ask the Holy Spirit, just prayerfully listen to this and say, God, what is it that's controlling me, uh, that's destroying me and others and dishonoring you? Uh, keep that in your mind as, as, as we go through this this morning. It may be more than, than one. Good chances, there's a good chance that there most definitely is more than one. Now, our story today is kind of a case study when it comes to deep killer cravings. I want to give you the context of the story before I read uh, the text. God gave Israel victory over this fortified city called Jericho. The walls just came tumbling down. It was miraculous. But then God said, you are not. He said to the people of Israel, you are not to take any of the wealth for yourself. But a man named Achan secretly stole some of the wealth and he hid it in his tent. And the result was that when Israel went into battle with a much smaller city called Ai, they lost. It was a blowout. Some of them were killed, and the rest went running for their lives. So Joshua falls on his face before God, and he cries out, Why did you let this happen? What in the world is going on? I thought you were with us. This is your fault, God. And God says, Someone in Israel some of the wealth of Jericho, I cannot go with you until that's dealt with. And so God tells Joshua how to deal with it. And then it gets narrowed down to Achan and his family, and that brings us to our story in Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 19, and it says this. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of, from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor, which means the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire. And stone them with stones. This is the word of God. And this 
is another passage of Scripture that just troubles me, disturbs me uh, deeply. And this passage, it does raise some reactionary questions, but legitimate questions like, uh, you know, why did so many others suffer the consequences along with Achan when Achan was the one who stole this stuff? And, you know, now that I think about it, why do we as Christians, why do we get bothered by this when we know that, that we all suffer the consequences of, of Adam and, and Eve's sin? And how have Christians, how have we Christians become so individualistic when we see that God constantly engages his people as a community all throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, there are so many questions here. Others like, why do we easily condemn a whole people group of a particular culture because of a few bad examples, but then when our people group and culture is criticized, we get defensive and say, don't paint, don't paint me with that brush. I didn't do anything wrong. But then Christians accept that Jesus paid for all of the sin of his people, even though he didn't do anything wrong. Our, our American individualism can blind us to our own contradictions and inconsistencies. And you know what? This passage does confront that. There's actually, I think, a deeper problem that fuels stuff like that, that fuels so much division and destruction and, and brokenness that, 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 that really, I think, causes us to put ourselves above other people. And, and the truth is, I mean, there are all kinds of crazy, there are all kinds of crazy ways this gets played out. And it's destructive. I mean, this right here, the issue that this addresses is a matter of life and death, and it is absolutely dreadful. And here's what I realized as I read this. I don't think that there is any way possible to read this passage and not be deeply disturbed unless you're a sociopath or something, right? And so I realized... This passage is supposed to disturb me. It's supposed to upset us. The issue being addressed is, is infinitely far more devastating if it is not addressed with great urgency. This text forces us to face the very real destruction of our killer cravings. And, and we're going to address that this morning, and we're going to address it with, with two points if you're taking notes. The first one has to do with understanding our, our killer cravings, all right? The first thing that we need to see is that our cravings are powerful. They control us. They're more powerful than we realize. And we see that in the story, but, but we also know that from personal experiences, don't we? In our own lives and the people that, that we know. They are so powerful that, that they blind us to terrible consequences. When I read this passage uh, to you and, and you heard about the stoning and, and burning, maybe most of you were like me, where, where you said, they did what? And maybe you thought, oh yeah, well, you know, this is one of those places in the Bible where people do things that, that we know now are, are, are primitive and, and wrong. But wait a second. 
when Joshua comes to Achan and says, tell me what you've done, Achan says, it's true, I sinned against the Lord. And Achan knew exactly what he had done. He knew the consequences. And you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, I, I didn't think it was a big deal. It's just a few, few things. I mean, you mean this is a capital offense? You, you're you're going to do what? He doesn't say that. Achan says, it's true, I'm guilty, you got me, I know it's coming. See, God made it absolutely clear to, to Israel to not take any of the wealth. And, and that's what all the other nations did, but not Israel. All the silver, all the gold, all the bronze was to be used for a tabernacle and temple to make a place of worship for all of the people because God's, and, and what's happening here is, is that God's glory and his honor is at stake and therefore so was the world as it should be. Only God and his glory can renew the world. Otherwise, the world falls apart and it destroys itself. So God makes this rule and everyone knew it. It's capital offense. Everyone knew it. And yet Achan's killer cravings are so incredibly powerful that they override his understanding. They override his fear of the consequences. They even override his desire for self-preservation. He was willing to lose everything for this. Does, does this sound familiar? You know, there are some things that our hearts want so much that we will become slaves to them and destroy our lives and the lives of, of others in order to get them. Do you, know, do you know what I'm talking about here? Have you experienced this? What is it that comes to your mind? Now, I have heard on multiple occasions uh, throughout the years about a technique used by trappers and hunters to catch Monkeys, and maybe you heard about it too. I thought it was one of those Snope stories, but then I saw it demonstrated in a documentary that I, that I was watching. And this is this is a this is a screenshot. A villager created a hole in the side of this termite hill and placed food or nuts or or something inside his bait, and sometimes something. Uh, uh, heavy and large, like, like a heavy and large jar is used, and the food is, is put into that, and the hole is just big enough for the monkey to reach in. But once he grabs the food, his hand is too large, and he can't pull it out. And he won't let it go. And so he can't get away. And so he starts pulling with all of his might and he sees the trapper uh, approaching and he starts panicking and freaking out and, and, and screaming, but he won't let it go. So that monkey's a goner. And we're all monkeys. In one way or another, we are just like this. We do this all the time. We won't let go. We have to have it. Our killer cravings are so powerful, we refuse to let go, and it destroys us. Next, our, our, our cravings intensify. We see four stages in Achan's the killer cravings in verse 21, and, and it says, when I, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful coke from Shinar and, and 200 
uh, shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. Stage one, you gaze. When it says that Achan saw, the word means beheld. He didn't just notice it, he beheld it. It means that he fixed his gaze upon it. Look, you know what? You cannot help but notice some things, but to gaze, that is something else. And that is where the problem starts. You gaze at it, you lust after it, and then you weigh. You know, you don't just notice 200 shekels, right? You might notice three or, or, or more, but, but you have to count 200, right? You have to pick them up and feel them and let them run through your fingers. You weigh it. You know, he says, I saw a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. The word used there for weigh or weight is the same word for glory. He gazed upon these things, gave them glory. He pondered uh, what they could do for him, their significance, right? And then you covet. To covet is to adore something, to worship something. Whatever you give glory to, you will worship it, and you will, you will adore it, you will sacrifice for it. And then you take. You take it because it's already taken you. There is a progressive nature to our killer cravings. They, they intensify until you fall. And then the third thing we learn is our cravings are pointers. Explain what I mean. There's a reporter once asked John D. Rockefeller, America's very first billionaire. And the reporter asked him, how much money is enough money? Anybody know what he said? Just a little bit more, right? See, we're still like this. No matter how much you get of what you want, it's never enough. It always leaves you with a desire for more. Cravings are addictive, and all addictions lead to a, a greater craving. Now, that leads us to a critical question. Why are our cravings never, never, ever satisfied, leaving us to, to want more and then to want more and then to want more? Well, our cravings point to something else. C.S. Lewis uh, addresses this when he, says, when he says this. He says, if, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered up like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are too easily pleased. We, there's something in us, in our nature, that knows that we were created for something more than this world could ever offer. And we're trying to satisfy our cravings with stuff that can never, ever 
fulfill our deepest cravings. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has set eternity in our hearts. We are craving something that only God himself can satisfy. Only he can do that. In the ratings of uh, St. Augustine, we read his prayer where he says, Lord, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. See, our killer cravings are, are pointers that, that, that pointing out that we were made for something better. And now the pressing question is, well, so how can we control these these enslaving, killer, destructive cravings. Remember, we all have addictions. Some are physical, others are emotional. The physical cravings are easier to see, but the emotional cravings that can tur- turn good things like love, approval, you know, respect, friends, security, into killer addictive cravings can be more difficult to see and therefore a little bit more difficult to address. So, what's involved with controlling our killer cravings. The first one is this. Take the exit ramp. Like when you're on a toll road. Several miles before the toll booth, the sign says, last exit before toll booth. If you don't want to pay the toll, you take the exit ramp. The Apostle Paul tells us this. He says, no temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to all men. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But in the temptation, he will show you a way out. In other words, he will give you an exit ramp. There there are always exit ramps. We're not looking for them because we're fixed. We have fixed our eyes upon this thing that we think that we need. If you catch yourself gazing, lusting after someone or or something, remember that God has already provided a way out. And so Paul is telling us so that we can anticipate it because if we don't anticipate it, it's usually too late. At any one of those points before you take, God provides an exit ramp because the toll is not worth it. He's not a killjoy, he's a savior. So let me ask you, what is it that you tend to to gaze at? If you don't know, you are at risk and in great danger. It's always destructive. Now here, maybe you don't know, here's a few tests. First one is this. Um, What do I usually turn to for comfort? When I'm hurting and I'm going through it, it seems like the world is falling apart. I have deep pain. I want to feel comfort. I want to be comforted. What do you tend, what do you tend to turn to? Or, or, or maybe you, you're like, no, I am incredibly uh, disciplined. I don't know what's wrong with all these other people, but I have my act together. So let me ask you, what is it that you think about when you don't have to think about anything else? What preoccupies you? Or what is it if you lost it? would destroy you. What do you gaze at? We need to be looking for the off-ramp before we have to pay the, the toll. And how do we do that? We shift 
our gaze. It's not enough to just say no. It's not enough to just say, stop it. It's not enough. Stop it. There's no power in that. The cravings are too powerful. That is a naive uh, perspective, a naive solution, because none at all. You have to shift your gaze. We like quoting uh, Thomas Chalmers every now and then. Matt Nix did not long ago, an, earlier, uh, an early 19th century pastor and statesman in Scotland, and he was deeply concerned about some people in Edinburgh who had these life-dominating uh, habits, and, and he wrote an essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, and he writes this. He says, The only way you can ever release the soul from the power of a beautiful object is to give it a more beautiful object. You can't simply just stop it. You can't simply not gaze at something beautiful when you're fixated on it. So you must have something more beautiful. The author of the book of Hebrews knows this. He says, let us run the race, throwing off everything that hinders us and fixing our eyes upon Jesus. King Jesus is the most beautiful. He is the expulsive power that sets us free from being enslaved to that which catches our eye, that which we covet, take, and destroy. This poet cries out to Jesus in a prayer, and he says, imprison me or I will be imprisoned. Enthrall me or I will be enthralled by something else. Now, if this prayer doesn't make sense to you, then, then you don't know the explosive power of Jesus. And can I just tell you something? Knowing this and being able to articulate it is, is, is not a, enough. I mean, that's a start, but it's not enough. It has to, move, it has to be internalized in such a way that, that, it, that it affects your affections. It's not just a matter of believing good doctrine. Knowing good doctrine is important, but that alone does not set you free. So many people love their theology more than they love Jesus and more than they love others because of what it does for them. Gain respect or looking good in the eyes of others, whatever. You see how sinister this can be? You can even take good things into the thing that we leverage to get what we really want. If we are going to be set free from addictions, we must behold and experience in a very real way the glory of King Jesus and you know what? We see the glory of King Jesus throughout the Gospels, but we especially see it at the cross. I mean, when you see Jesus dying for you, when you behold that, this is, this is the death of God the Son dying for me because it was the only way to save me. And yet he chose to love us so much that he would give his life for us, that he would take the sin, our sin upon himself to purchase us. When we see that, 
we can say, you know what? If someone as glorious as, as King Jesus loves me to do that, then I really don't need love from anyone else. Now, I'm not saying that won't be painful. I'm not saying that won't be lonely, but you will be set free from the addiction to romance that is devastating you right now. And you'll, you'll, you'll be set free from having to get, you know, a, a new best friend and you'll be able to be a friend and you'll be able to love people with no strings attached. I'm not saying it won't be lonely or painful, but it won't control you. You won't destroy, you won't be destroyed by it. You won't destroy others by it. We put our faith in Jesus to be a, our ultimate source of contentment and peace. When we look to him for that, you know what the Father says about you? The creator of the universe, of the heavens and earth, when you look to Jesus for your salvation, for your contentment, when you do that, you're clothed in Jesus' righteousness, and then the Father says, this is my son Jacob, in whom I am well pleased, my son whom I love. This is my daughter, Sharia, whom I love and whom I am well pleased. This is, this is my son, Evan, my son, Gary, my daughter, Shannon, whom I love and whom I am well pleased. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe says that about you. What else could we possibly want? You know? Now, we forget that, don't we? Little side note. Just to make this real, there's several things that God gives us to make this real. Because beyond just a, 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 like a theoretical exercise or something. God gives us community. It's one of the ways we experience His grace. We encourage each other. We lift each other up. We, we remind each other of who we are in Christ and how good and glorious God is because we lose our focus on Christ. We need each other to help each other to fix our eyes upon Jesus, right? He gives us community. He gives us the gift of, of, of his word, his glory. God, you want, you want God to talk to you? God talks to you through the Bible. You know, you read it and read it with others. Then if you have a hard time reading or understanding, read it with somebody else and then discuss it because you'll see it in ways that, that, that you can't see it just, just on your own. What a rich, amazingly rich resource that we have in the scriptures. And then we get to pray. We get to talk to God. We don't have to do some animal sacrifices first before we talk to God. We get to talk to God anytime, anywhere, all the time. And then I, I don't know about you, in some of my darkest days, when I come here on Sunday and I start worshiping, I start reading the words on the screen and I start internalizing them, it seems like those songs never mean more to me than, than when I'm going through my darkest days. And nothing else gives me relief and joy right in the middle of just darkness. Nothing else, no, no other substance, no, nothing else can do that for you. I mean, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, 
He just is. We know this, but we forget. We need each other. We need to point each other to Christ. He sets us free from our killer cravings, cravings for approval, cravings for respect, cravings for you know, comfort, cravings for success. I mean, it can even set you free to fail for the glory of God, right? If you see that one day you will enter his presence, and it, I mean, in the flesh, Jesus in the flesh, and experience life as it ought to be. And, and you know what? We, we won't have to comfort ourselves with false substitutes that can't satisfy. And then finally, if you fall repent. Now, that preacher just said repent. I don't like that. I understand. And the reason I understand is because, unfortunately, the call to repent has lost its meaning and it's been reduced to being nothing more than a verbal slap upside the head. And usually done by someone who thinks they're all that and that you should be like them. So, unfortunately, sadly, that word has lost its meaning. A call to repent is a call to true comfort. A call to repentance is a call to true peace. A call to repentance is, is a call to true freedom. It is it's calling you away from things that enslave you, that control you, that destroy you, and the people around you. It is a gloriously beautiful, beautiful word. And because of Jesus, we get to repent. We don't have to. I mean, yeah, we, have, we get to repent. If you covet and take, repent. Turn to the deliverer, the one who set you free. If we are defeated by our cravings, repent. Even if God leads you through the valley of Achor, the, the valley of, of trouble, you're in the midst of pain and misery and darkness. In Hosea, God says, I will make this valley of Achor, this valley of trouble that you're in right now, I will make this a door of hope. So even when you completely blow it and it seems like your life is being stoned and burned, crushed, God says, it is not over. I am opening a door of hope. Learn what it means to be loved by King Jesus. Learn to fix your eyes upon Jesus and I will make your valley of Achor a door of hope. We get a glimpse of it when we, when we worship, when we're in community, when we internalize his word, when we pray. And we get a glimpse of it, but there is a day coming when we will fully realize the glory of King Jesus. The day is coming when we will fully realize we don't need anything else. There is a day coming when all will be as it should be. I want you to know that your struggles are temporary and it's worth it to keep struggling and fighting it. Our satisfaction found in Christ is not temporary. Your struggles are, 
but our satisfaction found in Christ will last for all eternity. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Amen? Amen. And would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, we pray that this morning we would be able to see you um, and know you better than before because of, of your word. God, I pray that, that in this moment that you would guard our minds uh, from being distracted by anything else and fill our hearts with a desire to know you more. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, in this moment, you would bring to our minds the things that, that we look to that, have, that we feel like we have to have. Things that lead us to say things like, yes, Jesus, you're great and all, but I also need to have this to be happy. God, we pray that you would lovingly expose our, our idolatry so that we can see what is what wears away at our soul and robs us of joy and freedom in you. May we be a repentant people, not simply just turning from bad works to good works, but turning from all works to the work of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, I pray if anybody here has, has not ever put their faith and trust in, in you, I pray that, that, that you would give them eyes to see, give them the courage to follow you. We pray that you give them the gift of, of faith to believe in you, to trust you, to live for you, to honor you. And may they experience more joy and gratitude in security, in comfort than they ever imagined would be possible. We know only you can control our hearts. And so we pray for that. We pray these things in your name.